all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. And I just point out that the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Presbyterian Confession of Faith, and the London Baptist Confession share virtually the same language except for issues of baptism, pretty much, because Presbyterians and Baptisms be- Baptists believe a lot of the same things, especially about the doctrine of Scripture. This guy, Michael Byrd, concludes, Yes, while Protestants don't like having to rely on a professor or pope to tell them what to believe, and they generally affirm the clarity of Scripture, they also know that clarity is not evenly distributed across the Bible. Putnam asserts the general clarity of the subject matter of Scripture does not guarantee a perfect automatic understanding of every difficulty in the biblical text. What it means instead, and I'm going to summarize here, is that God has given us the scriptures and that it is sufficiently clear that if we exercise due diligence in interpreting the text, we can understand God's instructions for the plan of salvation for life and godliness. But it's through the ordinary means of receiving the scripture as communication and interpreting it. It's doing that hard work. Scripture's clarity does not mean that simply pronouncing the word magically yields understanding. As Grant Osborne notes, by the very fact that people differ so greatly when interpreting the same passage, we know that God does not miraculously reveal the meaning of passages whenever they're read. I'm not going to read this whole definition by Baptist historian Greg Allison, but he's essentially saying, Look, the scriptures are not equally clear, and not everybody is equally equipped for interpreting them. Therefore, we need to rely on gaining education, we need to rely on experts, and we need to appeal to the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures. Okay, so it's through the normal means of reading, aided by the Holy Spirit that testifies to the truth of the scriptures, that we come to interpret the Bible. If it's true that the Bible isn't magically revealing its meaning or miraculously revealing it, then we start to recognize we necessarily need a community to help us read the Bible rightly. We need experts in history, and we need experts in philosophy of language, and we need experts in translation to be able to read the Bible. We recognize this very quickly when we pull out a Hebrew and Greek text and we can't read it at least not very well. We know we need other people to read the Bible with us. So interpreting the Bible is hard work. Even though the Bible is a supernatural book, it's not a magical book. John Piper reminds us that the Bible requires more effort in reading than most books and not less. All right, so it's clear and understandable, but it's not necessarily easily understandable. If we can pause and recognize that when we run into Christians who disagree with us, we can immediately adopt a posture of humility where we're both saying, look, this is a hard book to read. And um, it's not, even though it seems plain and evident to me, maybe my plain reading is not an accurate reading. Also want to talk briefly about the nature of the Bible. Christians disagree about what kind of book the Bible is at least in their practice. I think when Christians start talking about it, they'll say the right things about what kind of the book, what kind of book the Bible is. But often Christians treat the Bible as um, an instruction manual. So for some people, it seems to function at the level of a car maintenance or garden tips or even first aid. 
It's a book to turn to when you don't know about a particular issue or problem. For some, it's like a dictionary, a list of all the things you're supposed to know and believe about the Christian faith, or an atlas helping you find your way around the world without getting lost. This is what some people mean when they speak of the Bible as being the ultimate authority. So they studied it as you might study a dictionary or atlas or even a car manual. But the Bible is not a compendium of instructions for daily living. It's, it's much more than that. It doesn't address every question that we might have, believe it or not. It's not wrong for us to ask, what does the Bible say about global warming? But the Bible doesn't talk about global warming. It doesn't care that much about global warming. No one was talking about that. So we can't just conjure up any question and say, the Bible, as my authority for faith and practice, will tell me what to think about carbon emissions. That, that's not in the Bible, and we shouldn't treat the Bible that way. We need to read the Bible on its own terms, not on our own terms. So for that reason, we need to develop interpretive skills and intuitions as we read the Scripture that conform to what the Bible is. We also have to become conscious of the methods that we're employing when we interpret the Bible and construct theology. And often we won't realize that we are using a method until we're confronted with someone who disagrees with us. All of us have a method of interpretation, whether we could articulate it or not. And it's not until someone disagrees with us or tells us you're interpreting fallaciously that we start to get defensive and start to defend our approach to the Bible. That's the best part about running into someone who disagrees with us. It makes us aware of our unconscious assumptions about the Bible, what it means to formulate theology, and what it means to interpret it. All right, so we need to understand the Bible is not an instruction. Um, so I was talking with someone recently about um, the way that dads can mess up as parents in the way that sons can mess up as sons. I tried to say, the, there is no instruction manual for being a dad. There is no instruction manual for being a son. Sometimes we try to turn the Bible into that. Now, does the Bible speak with relevance and guidance for operating as a father in this world? Yes. But does it lay out the particulars of being a dad? No, it doesn't. Instead, it gives us a father in heaven who shows us what it's like to be a father, but it doesn't address all of the questions that we have about being a dad or a mom. It doesn't tell us if baby-wise is the right, right way to raise your kid or if some other method is right. We, we can't treat the Bible in that way. That's overly simplistic, and it's not in keeping with the intention of the biblical authors. All right, I think that's fairly clear. Hey, I want to talk about what it means to hold on to this Reformation idea of sola scriptura, which we could translate as scripture alone. This doctrine is easily misunderstood as meaning that scripture alone is authoritative and required for the formation of doctrine and for directing Christian living, and that interpretation of scripture should happen alone, in isolation from other Christians living and dead. Even the most conservative theologian will admit that more than scripture is needed for the formation of theology and for the direction of daily living because the Bible doesn't address every question we might have. In general, evangelicals agree that scripture, tradition, capital T, 
as in like the councils and the creeds and little t, as in the last hundred years of your denomination's history. Nature, experience, and culture all have a role to play through precise, though precise agreement on the role of each source for theological formation is elusive. So we're all saying, yes, other sources are needed. We're not saying that the Bible alone is where we get our doctrine and guidance for living. We're saying that it's the final authority, not the only authority. It's the supreme authority. I appreciated, Marilyn, your prayer the other day or yesterday where you were talking about the way that we learn about God from the the way that I forget everything that you said, but you talked about animals and the universe and even the way that bacteria and diseases function. We learn about God and we form our theology outside of just the words of scripture. And that's, that's a right recognition to have And it's deficient for us to say, in isolation, solo scripture and solo me, I'm going to decide what doctrine is and what I should, how I should live. Um, I would just stress that the people who proclaim that most loudly have convinced themselves that they're doing it, but they're not. They're not. They're interpreting with outside influences They're not blank slates as if they can just read the Bible and apprehend it without um, any subjectivity and total objectivity. We are unconsciously shaped by our culture, our place in the stream of philosophical thought, our experiences and emotions, and the tradition we're raised in. So when this false sense of objectivity combines with misunderstandings about the clarity and nature of Scripture, the result is not only poor theology, but also the inability to attribute disagreements about Scripture— to anything but unfaithfulness to to Christ, then it results in deeply felt division. So I'm trying to bust here the myth of pure objectivity. We all bring things to the table when we read the Bible. Another point to stress, as I've already said, is that Scripture alone is the final and supreme authority, but we shouldn't read Scripture alone, either in terms of personal isolation or apart from the reading and teaching of the church across place and time. Van Huser explains, neither Luther nor Calvin advocated traditionalist interpretation. It's important not to confuse sola sola scriptura with solo scriptura. The problem with thinking that individuals interpret the Bible alone, that is by and for themselves in isolation from the church and tradition, is not only the lack of checks and balances on their readings, but the inevitable ensuing neglect of the gifts the Spirit has provided. In particular, Solo Scriptura denies the importance of reading in communion with the saints. So it's not a blank check that we cash to fund our own idiosyncratic interpretations of the Bible, but a call to attend to the broader pattern of Protestant authority and to listen to the Spirit speaking in the history of the church's interpretation of Scripture. So at a basic level, this means we need to pursue reading and interpreting the Bible with other Christians and in our church communities. We shouldn't unnecessarily devalue God and I time individual reading of the Bible, but we shouldn't overvalue it either. We need to read communally. What's more, as we think about our church, fellow church members should feel secure sharing their readings of scripture, doctrinal positions, conclusions about matters of conscience with one another and with their pastors for the sake of fruitful conversation, But if there's always pressure for people to conform to one another with precision, and when disagreements on these matters are responded to without charity or without attempts at understanding, those conversations become really, really difficult. 
in those settings, churches create a culture of apparent unity or uniformity, but the unity is only skin deep because no one has the freedom to think out loud while they're working out their doctrinal development or to arrive at a nonconformist position without fear of relational damage. So in the end, everyone involved is deprived of meditating on the scripture and deepening in the faith, not to mention the strengthening of relationships through thoughtful conversation. So we want to be a place where you can wrestle with scripture and work through disagreements and do it out loud, think out loud with one another without fear of being shut down or um, facing social you know, rejection because you're not on the page with what the majority of people think. That's hard to do. And I just want to confess that I've probably shut down conversations. I've probably been part of the problem on these things. And I think we all probably have to one degree or another. So we need to um, reflect on the way we, we go about this. At a larger level, though, it means that we should draw on the interpretive insights of other churches, traditions, and denominations instead of prizing one particular denominational tradition. So I really like the way Van Huser says this. Denominations are like houses. They are places where people, where disciples can be sheltered and nurtured. There's nothing wrong with living in a house. It beats homelessness. As long as one practices hospitality to strangers and neighborliness to those who live next door. The point is that we should train disciples not only in our family traditions, but also to be good neighbors. Please note that each house, each denomination, each local church is charged with representing the whole neighborhood, Christ, Christianity. The local church's first responsibility is to be a royal priesthood that represents Christ, not a particular denomination. We are first Christians, and only somewhere down the line after the stream of Protestants, do we get to something like evangelicals and then Baptists? We're first Christians. So I think one way that we can be a good neighbor, representing the whole neighborhood, is by identifying who we are in terms of our shared possession by Christ. And I phrase that intentionally, not our possession of Christ, but our possession by Christ, his owning of us, rather than in terms of our distinction from other Protestant traditions. I like that our name is Resurrection Church because embedded in our name is the focal point of our Christian hope and immediate common ground with every other Orthodox Christian. We believe in the resurrection. It's our greatest hope. Instead of being that neighbor who, when someone comes into the neighborhood, tries to point out what's wrong with all the other neighbors, pointing out what you don't like about their yard or their house or what they do, We should be the neighbor that learns to appreciate the families on our block, strengths, weaknesses, quirkiness, and all, nor should we be so blind as to think that we don't have any weaknesses or quirks. So when someone becomes a Christian or when someone walks into our door, we're not just representing us, we're representing all Christians, we're representing Christ. So my simple encouragement to you would be when you interact with visitors here, and they ask what our church is, what we believe. Don't start by articulating what we believe by saying we disagree with all of these other traditions on these matters. Instead, start by articulating what we share in common with the Christian faith. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, recite the Apostles' Creed to them, okay? We believe that Jesus died for us to raise us from the dead. We return, you know, when, when you, someone asks you, what do you believe about the end times? Say something like this. 
Christ will return with glory, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Every Orthodox Christian believes that. Welcome people into the neighborhood, not just to our church. Uh, To press the analogy further, when we engage with our neighbors and non-neighbors who walk through the neighborhood, and we find that our house needs some repair, we shouldn't neglect to repair it. When we notice a weakness in our church tradition, we shouldn't hesitate to compensate for it. There's no virtue in refusing to clean our yard or to paint our house so that we'll still remain distinct from other neighbors. So we shouldn't say we want to remain distinctly Baptist in their weaknesses, and we don't want to adopt the strength of another tradition. No, we shouldn't. That, there's no virtue in that. Van Huser then gives a warning to local churches and to individuals about just as individual heretics are those who choose to go the, their own way, so too churches need to guard against the temptation of thinking that only their interpretation or way of doing discipleship is biblically authorized. He goes on to say in that way, there's no such thing as an independent Baptist church. Um, Independence, those who go their own way, are the heretics. We're all connected to the larger history of the Christian church. We need to keep moving here. One of the reasons that I do very full manuscripty type notes with a lot of footnotes is so that you can take some of these things home and keep reflecting on them. And that way, if I can't talk about everything, it's fine. You know, so it's, it's here, it's documented, you can investigate it, and we can talk. Very briefly, the illumination of the Spirit. I just want to say that we might be convinced wrongly that the illumination of the Spirit means that he'll magically move us past the natural means of reading and interpretation just to give us all of the insights without um, using, you know, our right due diligence in, in reading. That's not what the illumination of the Spirit means. Now, as you can guess, Christians disagree on this, but I think fundamentally it's best to say that the illumination of the Spirit in our prayers for his help in interpreting is primarily a request for him to uh, sanctify us so that sin doesn't get in the way of our interpretation and that his Spirit will testify both to the truth of what we're reading and to the conviction that we need that truth. It doesn't reveal meaning in a mystical way. Instead, he uses the normal means of reading, but he does specially and miraculously allow us to believe that we need that truth and then to perform that truth in our living. Really briefly, we've talked about the clarity and authority of the scripture. We need to talk about the Christian as an interpreter. Christians have tons of limitations when they're reading the Bible, that will lead to disagreements, differences of interpretation. First, because all human reasoning is limited. None of us can think about all of the data in one moment at one time. We forget things. We don't pay attention to everything we need to. We are finite creatures. We always are limited. It's part of who we are as creatures. And as long as there is any form of communication, and as long as we are not God, we're going to have to work through interpretation and misunderstandings. It's part of our human existence, and I would submit, even in the new creation, we're going to have to do the hard work of interpretation, unless you believe that in the new creation we become God, but that was the essence of the fall. Uh, you, you don't need God. We want all the knowledge. Eat of the, tr- the tree so you have perfect knowledge. Well, that led to bad places. So we're all, it's who we are. We're, we're finite. It's not connected to sin. It's connected to our creatureliness. Second, we interpret text from our own cultural and personal perspectives, we're always reading in some way subjectively. 
Third, we interpret the Bible from a historical, cultural, geographical, and linguistic distance. The Bible is a foreign book. Whenever we read, we're on a cross-cultural, cross-temporal literary experience. It's like we're jumping in a time machine and going to a different culture. It's not even just like we're going to Israel today, but Israel 2,004 and 6,000 years ago. Um, So think about the way that culture shapes our understanding. The comment, I'm mad about my flat, could mean someone's upset that they got a flat tire in America, or that someone's psyched about their new apartment in a British context. Even where we have pretty much a shared origin of nationality, there are differences in the way that we use words, even in the same time. So add 2,000 years in total different national origins, and you'll see that it's more complicated. Or consider the way that language itself works. Statements, phrases, questions can actually be commands. So when a mom asks her teenage son if he's done his homework, while she's looking at the backpack he tossed on the floor on his way in after school as he rushes downstairs to the gaming console, that question is not a question but a command. Stop playing video games and go do your homework. Language is complicated. History is challenging. Culture is misleading, so we need to grow and and acquire the tools necessary for interpreting the Bible, and none of us can become experts. Um, We need experts to help us. We don't like it, and it's not because our, our resistance to drawing on experts is not connected to our doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. It's connected to our American individualism. So there's a book, I didn't footnote it, I should have, I intended to, called The Death of Expertise that traces this. We can wrongly connect our refusal to rely on experts to help us to the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, you know, everyone can read the Bible, when really it's just our American pride. Even when you, I mean, look at the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, even in ancient Israel, they were a kingdom of priests, but they still had priests who were the experts, so to speak. So we need to think about that uh, more broadly. Fourth, we interpret the Bible with pre-understandings of what we read. We come already thinking we know what a text means most of the time. This happened to me when I started to prepare our Esther series. And the more that I got into it, the more I realized my pre-understanding, though initially it seemed natural, I came to find out, I now believe, was inaccurate. That happens all the time when we start to dive deeply into texts. So often what might seem like a natural reading turns out to be an incorrect reading. So we should operate in terms of having a provisional reading of the text, because we all come with an idea, that's open to adjustment. Fifth, we interpret the Bible as sinners. Um, So sin gets in the way of reading. Need to move in the last couple moments to the danger of overstating disagreements. When we know that we reasonably have disagreements, we can start to overstate them And in that overstatement, dive into deep division where it doesn't need to be there at all. I want to suggest that more often than not, even where we disagree, we share more in common than we have um, different difference. The, The reality is that the more you're unified on something, the more clearly you can see the distinctiveness of what you believe. This is why we might say, uh, Muslims all believe the same thing. But if you start working with a Muslim coworker, you'll start to find out it's just incredibly complex about what Muslims believe. And it's only once you're within that world that you can see the differences. That's how it works when we say, okay, we're Protestants. We have more in agreement with each other than anyone, on plan- you know, anyone else on the planet. Everyone else disagrees with us more than 
we disagree with each other, but then we start to overstate our disagreements. So, for example, Christians might say, well, okay, we have Calvinism and Arminianism. How do Christians get saved? Well, we all agree that God saves us, and we all agree that we need to repent and believe. So even in this thing that separates Christians and churches, they hold a ton in common. Think about conscience or matters of Christian living. Uh, Christians agree that divorce is bad, and they disagree over which reasons there are for valid divorce. But all of them agree also that God forgives divorced people, even as we might disagree whether or not divorced people can serve as church leaders. There's way more agreement than there is disagreement when you start to look at larger societal um, thinking about divorce. So in the next lesson, we'll get into this more, what is doctrine for and when we should divide. But right now, I just want to say, if you're thinking about a disagreement with someone, try to recognize whether or not you're overstating that disagreement. And I'd say nine times out of ten, we probably are. So here are some initial recommendations. One is you read the Bible, form doctrine, decide on matters of conscience and Christian living, seek God's guidance, ask for help in understanding, but more importantly, help in responding appropriately to the word. And as you do so, pursue the interpretive virtues of humility, sensibility, diligence, curiosity, and trust. Second, work to grow in your interpretive abilities in a variety of ways that I've listed there for you. Third, work to be aware of valid interpretations of texts that might be different than our own. Try to understand how they got there. Read books on the topic you care most about that have a spectrum of views. So if you're disagreeing with someone about the doctrine of heaven, read Zondervan's most recent book on five views of heaven. Try to understand what the other options are because you may hold your view without recognizing that there are other better, more compelling, convincing options. Fourth, read the Bible and do theology with other Christians living and dead in your home groups and in ancient commentaries. And finally, maybe even most importantly, pursue well-rounded relationship with others, including those who have different interests, backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives. Get to know them and genuinely care about them because often we tend to disagree and divide more easily with people we don't know well or that we don't care about. Um, But we often find that when we love someone, when we disagree, we can hold those disagreements together and pursue fruitful conversation. All right, we're at the end of our time. Uh, So if you'd like to talk about anything that we couldn't pause for questions, I'll stick around here for a few minutes. Thanks.